We are back with the Is Hell Eternal Dialogue. I'm your host, Tyler Fowler. Again, this is the second part. This is the second part of this dialogue. We have Michael Keaton, Chris Date, and Ross Burns joining us all tonight. And I'm just thrilled. Again, like I'm so thrilled to have these guys on. I was telling them during the break, I just respect them so much. And their generosity toward one another is just absolutely, it, it, it's spot on, to be honest. They're Christ-like to the T. And this is why I love having these guys on to set back to talk about their differences, about these things. You know, the, the Bible, like I, like I said the other day, the Bible is our authority. And we have to, as Christians, I believe, we are all brothers here, right? And so we have to come together. We have to have these discussions because we have to come to truth. We are all, I, I think I'm safe to say, we are all seeking what's true here. And, and, and granted, there are different perspectives of that. There's so many different perspectives um, of what's true, but, but regardless, what's true is true. And the Bible and God has revealed truth to us in his word. So I don't want to, I don't want to go anywhere else, but Ross, We've heard the positive argument. We've heard the positive case for conditional immortality. If you could, brother, would you present a positive uh, case for eternal conscious torment? Um, I know you gave a summary summary um, in the first hour, but would you go into a little bit more detail? I know you got some verses. Um, so, man, do your thing, and let's see why, where the Bible does, in fact, teach eternal conscious torment. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks. I appreciate it, Tyler. So Absolutely. yeah, we, 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 uh, we talked a little bit about revelation 14 before the break. We just yeah, very briefly, you know, I'm not trying to get into a deep exegesis of these texts right away. Cause uh, you know, I want room for discussion and everything like that. And uh, I imagine Chris may have heard these arguments before once or <laughs> twice. So, uh, <laughs> so I'm sure we'll know. have stuff to, <laughs> yeah, yeah, this could go either way. I'm, I'm sure we'll have some stuff to discuss. Sure. So uh, moving on to Revelation 20, um, you know, maybe it would just be helpful for the audience just for me to read verses 10 through 15 very quickly. Please. Um, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and false prophet were. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what is written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And then just the last verse, just for some context, and I'm sure this will be important in our discussion. Uh, Revelation 21, verse 8, just kind of summarizes this. It says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake 
that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, obviously, this is Revelation. Revelation is, uh, I think, by all accounts, the easiest book of the Bible to understand. Um, it's certainly the clearest, and no one is ever confused when they pick up uh, the book of Revelation, any of that sort of thing. So there's great, great symbolism. We know that. Um, you know, I don't think any of us here expect an actual lake of fire uh, where you know, death and Hades, whatever that could even mean, are thrown into them. Uh, I've lost did, Ross. Did we lose Ross? You know, the movie maker. Anyway. Um, <laughs> anyways, there's a lot of symbolism here. There's a lot of high stuff. But my contention is here, whatever symbolism uh, here means, it certainly seems to entail that tormented day and night forever and ever entails a conscious existence of the lost forever and ever. Um, it, it seems to me when I talk with my universalist friends, they look at Revelation 20 and they say, well, this is symbolic. And really what's going to happen is all of the, uh, all of the lost will eventually be reconciled. Right. And I look at Revelation 20, I'm like, sure, it's symbolism, but clearly what it's trying to say here isn't that you, you can't symbolize out of the intention of the passage. So what I would want to argue is that uh, whatever all the images, if we take them in isolation from one another, whether it's smoke whether it's, uh, you know, um, let's see, you know, that no rest day or night forever, never, whether it's, it's all the stuff, the bowl of wrath and everything like that, all of them in context with tormented day and night forever and ever, it's very difficult to convince me that that means that is symbolic of the cessation of existence finally and ultimately. So that would be basically the case. Hopefully I didn't ramble on forever. <laughs> no, nah, man, you're good. Uh, Chris, how would you respond to uh, what Ross said? Uh, well, first, let me just say that I have co-written a journal article that will be coming out hopefully um, in the next few months. Um, the journal is called the Journal of the Ecclesia Scholar Society. It's the journal published by Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. And the article is a case for conditional immortality and annihilationism from this very book, the Book of Revelation. And in fact, it'll be one in a series of articles where a believer in eternal torment uh, writes an article in defense thereof from the book of Revelation and where a universalist writes an article in support of universalism from this book. So I'm hoping listeners will keep an eye out for this journal called Jess, J-E-S-S, um, because they'll be able to read a lot more of what I'm only going to be able to provide some short pieces of right now. The other thing that I want to say to, as, as a preface to my answer is that um, we've just been br briefly discussing three texts, but I've got a lot to say about all three, and I don't mm -hmm. want to take up, I, I could easily spend the next 50 minutes <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, explaining how these passages are actually better support for my view than for Ross's. So instead of doing that, I'm just going to take it one text at a time, and then Ross and I can go back and forth, and Mike, uh, you know, um, so before I move on to Revelation 20 and 21, Let's focus on Revelation 14 first. Now, with that in mind, it's really, I think, a mistake for any of us, Ross or anybody else, to, to try and say, um, this imagery just can't mean X. 
Um, and the reason is because we are 2000 years removed and extremely culturally removed from the culture and people that produced this text. And mind you, the text itself just records a vision that was given by God to a prophet who lived in that culture. And ultimately, it's not up to us whether we can conceive of how a particular symbol could mean X, Y, or Z. That's not really up to us. What we have to let the scriptures do is under is interpret that imagery for us, at least to the extent that it does so. And as it turns out, it does so. Hmm. And that's what I want to talk about here with Revelation 14, and then we'll also talk about it when we get to Revelation 20. So here's what I want to say about Revelation 14, 9 to 11. There are at least three symbols in this um, cluster of images that we're that we're reading here that um, that that I want to focus on. First, there's the drinking of God's wrath. Then there's being tormented in fire and sulfur, and then there's smoke rising forever from torment. The reason I want to talk about these first these three symbols is because I don't we don't have to look at any one of these symbols on their own. I think we should instead see if there's anywhere else where all of these symbols are used together. And indeed, they are in this very vision. So if we just go a few chapters forward to Revelation 18, we read about that harlot that Ross mentioned earlier, Mystery Babylon. The God tells God's people to repay her back by making her drink twice what she has caused others to drink. There's the drinking of God's wrath, and scholarly commentaries acknowledge that. Um, multiple times in Revelation 18, she is said to be tormented by fire. And then at the beginning of Revelation 19, a hallelujah chorus cries out, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. So you have all three of those symbols converging to describe the visionary fate, the fate of the, of the harlot in the vision, as being one of everlasting torment by fire from which smoke rises forever. That is what is depicted, and that's really important. We need to understand the difference between what is depicted in a visionary experience like this and what that depiction symbolizes in reality. So the point I'm getting at here is that both of these two passages, Revelation 14, 9 to 11 and Revelation 18 and 19, both depict a fate in which a personal entity or, or entities are, are uh, suffer torment forever in fire and smoke rises from their torment forever. We don't have an explicit interpretation of the first passage, Revelation 14, 9 to 11, but we do have an explicit interpretation of the second set. Because in Revelation 18, verse 21, an angel tells John, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And then it goes on. Mm. You see, what the angel is doing for John and, uh, and then what the angel through John is doing for John's readers is interpreting the symbolism. And this is a practice that goes all the way back to Genesis uh, 40, at the very, at least, if not earlier, where... Um, People see prophetic visions, and then somebody, but and those visions are extremely difficult to understand. But then somebody explains the meaning in ways that those people can understand. Um, Joseph, for example, uh, he, when he's in prison, he interprets the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker. And the baker has this dream where there are three baskets on his head. And imagine if somebody said to you, um, I just don't see how um, three baskets could represent. Um, uh, you know, a passage of time, right? You've got in the in the vision, you've got these three baskets on top of a person's head all at once. How could those possibly represent any sort of passage of time? No, it must it must be something like a picture of the Trinity or something like that. Well, 
any of us who are familiar with the story I'm referring to will know that that person um, is it would be completely out to lunch and would be imposing his or her own ideas of what biblical symbolism could mean on the visionaries themselves and, and the source of those visions, which is God himself. Because what we actually read is that Joseph interprets that vision for the baker, and what he tells him is that the three baskets are three days. Mm-hmm. The, the three baskets symbolize three right. days. Well, so now, th- and, and, and I could just, I could go on and on about examples like this. Joseph with those two people I just mentioned in prison, then Joseph with Pharaoh, then Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel and himself, uh, and on and on goes. Even John himself, here and elsewhere, has his vision interpreted for him, and John himself does the interpretation in some cases. And here what we see is that all of this, this cluster of images, drinking God's wrath, being tormented in fire, and smoke rising from torment forever— we have that explicitly interpreted for us in Revelation, 8, Revelation 18. That scene, we're told, symbolizes the destruction of a city. So Ross and, and Mike and others can certainly do what they want. I can't control them and tell them what they have to do. But what I yeah. can say is that it simply, as a matter of fact, is illegitimate to impose your own impressions of what imagery can or cannot communicate on the source of that imagery, namely God, and upon the recorder of that imagery, namely John. Um, and, and because of that, I personally am unwilling to do so. I must instead let the interpretation itself be the authority. And the interpretation is that this imagery symbolizes destruction. Now, I'll add just one more thing, that this imagery, although I've focused solely in what I've just said on the book of Revelation itself, it's not new to Revelation. All three of those symbols I mentioned are symbols you can find in the Old Testament for death and destruction of, you know, causing living people to become dead. Um, The most notorious example is, in fact, the rising smoke. In fact, identical language of smoke rising forever is found in Isaiah 34.10, where smoke is said to rise forever from the burning wasteland that that, uh, that Edom is rendered, right? Edom is destroyed, Mm -hmm. turned into a smoldering wasteland, and smoke is said to rise from it forever. But none of us actually think, at least I don't think any of us thinks, that there will literally be smoke belching forth from the ruins of Edom all throughout eternity. No, it's, it's a picture akin to what we moderns think of when we see a mushroom cloud. We think obliteration, destruction. Um, and indeed, it goes even further back than that to Genesis 19, when after the Lord rains down fire and sulfur from heaven onto Sodom and Gomorrah, Adam, or, or sorry, Abram looks out over the plains and sees smoke rising as if from a furnace. And what's fascinating, by the way, is that biblical authors and intertestamental authors use that fiery destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the killing of its inhabitants as an example of what's going to await the ungodly. Chris, if I could just for a second, um, I want to, for our listeners, um, and then Ross, um, if you could, I would love if you would answer um, Chris's objection to you about the smoke, um, because that's what I want to kind of focus on. Uh, Revelation fourteen nine. It starts out it says a third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, "If anyone worships the beast and its and and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured out full strength into the cup of His wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels, and and of the Lamb." And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image or for anyone who receives 
the mark of its name. Revelation 19, then uh, verse 1 says, After these things I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation, glory, and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great prostitute who is corrupting the earth with her sexual immorality, and he has avenged the blood of the bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God sitting on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God. The point is, is the exact same wording is used. And it looks like in judgment, judgment is the context of both, it seems. So just out of curiosity, Ross, for in, in, in Revelation 19, uh, verse 4, or I'm sorry, verse 3, and the second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises forever and ever. Why would that not be interpreted as the same way as Revela- that you interpret Revelation 14, um, verses 10 through 15? Yeah, I would understand the symbols to obviously be uh, complementary there. It's maybe two descriptions of the same thing that's happening. Uh, now, I would add that maybe Revelation 20 is describing a slightly different scene. Maybe it moves to a more universal sense because now we're, you know, we're after the millennium, uh, whatever you want the millennium to mean. That's a whole different podcast. Right. But, uh, so that's a, that's a different scene drawing on, <clears throat> drawing on some things from before. But Revelation 14 and 19, if we take them together. Uh, now, now, remember, Revelation 14 is my answer to, because uh, I'm trying to make a harmonization of how can destruction, uh, you, you know, what can destruction mean? I say destruction means um, it has the connotation of ruin and corruption and can entail conscious existence beyond death. I don't see how it's a rebuttal to the position to say that, well, in Revelation 19, there's this connotation of destruction. And I'm like, okay, I don't have a problem with destruction. Destruction, I'm saying, means corruption. Um, And I don't see, now Chris's point was that Revelation 18 and 19 uh, present a, there's the the angel coming along and saying, hey, I know that was all really confusing. Um, Here's what all of that meant in really plain terms. And I don't see that. I see just additions to the imagery, you know, starting at verse 21, that's not a clear cut explanation by the angel saying, I know that was all really confusing. All that torment stuff could have thrown you off, but here's basically what it means. The verse 21 starts off with a mighty angel taking up a stone, like a great millstone and throwing it into the sea. We're still in, we're still in wild symbolism territory here. We're not in the uh, calm, cool, collected explanation of the guide territory. It seems to me. So I wouldn't uh, see Chris's argument that chapters 19 and so forth and chapters 18 and 19 explain away the existence of the torment. For me, it's still very much still there. So uh, let me just interject and say, first of all, I I think it would be good if we steered clear of the loaded language of explain away. I don't think that's fair. Um, So if we just remove the word away, then we'll have something fair and charitable that we can we can say. In other words, you don't think that the angel is interpreting the the scene that includes torment as meaning the destruction of the city. And I get that because you're right. The the verse does start by having the angel do some other act, namely throw a great millstone into the sea. And so what his interpretation is of is that to be sure but it's not only that um consider firstly as it said as as i said it says babylon the great city will be thrown down with violence well where is babylon in the stone it's not Mm 
It's in the great city that is mentioned earlier in the pericope where it's describing the fate of mystery Babylon, the, the woman representing the great city. Consider also that in leading up to verse 21, we have all this talk about the people that um, have done uh, uh, business with the city and, you know, with women and so forth. And then we have the same thing and their lament over seeing the, 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 the woman burning and, the, and tormented, being tormented. And then sure enough, we see in the angel's interpretation, the sound of harpists and musicians of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. A craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And on and on it goes. For your merchants, verse 23 says, were the great ones of the earth and all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all who've been slain on earth, which go back to the fact that this great woman is said, this, this mystery Babylon is said to be drunk on the blood of the saints. You see this act of the um, of the angel throwing the great millstone into the sea and then interpreting it is itself an interpretation of the scene, the scene of the woman's torment. And so we we can we can um, try to um, uh, we we can try to somehow bifurcate. Uh, verses 21 and following in Revelation 18 from what came before it, um, but that is an artificial and unjustified uh, bifurcation. Yeah, I would agree. I'm not trying to uh, bifurcate 21 and, and prior. I'm, I'm certainly not saying that. All I'm saying is doesn't seem to be, uh, actually, I would I would argue that I'm, uh, I think their bifurcating might not be done more by me. So I'm seeing a continuity between the symbolism and the dramatic language uh, breaking into lines of poetry, and it continues into chapter 19 um, with the great multitude in heaven crying out. It seems like we're in symbolism territory this whole time, but I, I guess the big thing for me, and I apologize for my snarkiness before, you, you are correct to point out <laughs> the explain away thing was quite snarky, but uh, the, the big thing for me would be uh, I, I don't see how the destruction of a city means that there can't be torment afterwards. Oh, I, I'm not saying it doesn't mean that, that, that that isn't possible. But what I am saying is that when there is no, uh, when there is no evidence in the interpretation that the scene has anything to do with torment of individuals, then we don't get to just assume that that's what it must be. Everything in the interpretation of the scene is about the destruction of a city represented by the woman who is tormented by fire and from whom smoke rises forever. So we can, we can, um, the, the danger, I think, in what you're doing, and, and of course, you and many other people are going to disagree that this is in fact a danger, and that's fine. But the danger in what you're doing is you are setting limits on what the symbolism could possibly mean in reality. And that's not right. It's not, it's not wise. It's not hermeneutic. Uh, you know, it, it's not following sound hermeneutics. We have to let symbolism be whatever God has intended for that symbolism to symbolize. And in this case, all the evidence that we have in what we're told the woman's torment and fire symbolizes in reality is that her fate symbolizes the destruction of a city. Anything about people being tormented thereafter is you reading into the meaning of the symbolism rather than letting, um, rather than something you're getting out of the symbolism. Because again, it requires the assumption that torment in symbolism could only possibly mean ongoing torment in reality, despite the fact, of course, that death and destruction, um, according to your view, uh, and a cessation of torment is plenty of times, uh, or the cessation of life, for example, is very frequently a symbol for what you're assuming is ongoing torment. I mean, after all, that's what the 
happens in the parable of the weeds in Matthew 13. The weeds are burned up, katakaio, reduced to ashes. And yet somehow the traditional view wants to say, well, that's symbolic of people suffering forever in hell. Well, okay, but if you want to do that, or if somebody wants to do that, then it's got to be equally possible that life forever in torment could possibly, in fact, be a symbol for a fate that is inclusive of ceasing to uh, ceasing to exist. Because that's what happens to the city here. It, in fact, the, the angel explicitly says the great city will be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. So that's what I'm alleging, that you are assuming that you can that you can justifiably limit what symbolism in a 2,000-year-old uh, document written by from somebody in a culture whose idioms, expressions, and symbology is very different from our own, you're assuming that you can correctly identify what, what the constraints are and what that symbolism can and can't be. And I just, I really don't think that that's wise. I think it's a recipe for disaster. If I could just interject just for a second, I am reading uh, Revelation 19 just kind of over and over again. And I'm, and the, it, the, the context is about the city, the great city, Hallelujah, salvation, glory, and power belong to our God, I mean, too, because his judgments are true and righteous, for he has judged the great prostitute, right? It seems like it, it seems like John is saying, and, and I don't know really how to word it, but he's basically likening the city to a woman, right? And whenever I read her smoke goes up forever and ever, I don't automatically take their, oh, the, the city's burning forever and ever. So the, exactly. point, the question earlier was before is that, so now whenever I go back to Revelation 14 and I read that her smoke going up or their smoke goes up forever and ever, what I'm seeing now because of, you know, looking at 19 and 14, I don't look at the city being, you know, or not even the city in this context, he, he's portraying the city as a woman, right? I don't see that woman being judged forever and ever. I see a time and it, and it was a quick, you know, the hour in just an hour, the great city has been judged, right? It's done at that point. So whenever I look back to 14, does that make sense? What I'm the, the main point I'm trying to make is whenever I read Revelation 19, I don't see the city burning forever and ever. That's right, because so, and, and this is really important, and I'm not saying that this is something that Ross has failed to um, uh, to to pick up on or anything like that, but it is really important that we differentiate between the fate of the woman and the fate of the city, because the the everything that we read about here, the smoke rising from her forever, smoke rising from her torment, etc., all of that stuff is happening to the woman in the right. vision. Right. That doesn't follow from that. That therefore. Any particular detail of that fate is identical or, or is true of the fate of the city she represents or its inhabitants, for that matter. And, and so I really want to make clear that throughout this discussion, we differentiate, as we ought to, between what the fate of the visionary symbols are, the symbols in the visions, the personal entities that symbolize things, what their fate is, is a symbol for a different fate, namely the fate that is suffered by the thing that that symbol represents. And we have to make sure we, we correctly differentiate between those two things. Absolutely. Mike, you have been super quiet, super patient, brother. Um, comments, questions, concerns? Uh, no, I don't really have too much to say. I'm enjoying the discussion. Uh, to get involved would probably uh, require me to get into some sort of exegetical uh, fashion. And uh, I probably don't have well, the time really to do that or interrupt. But so well, let me right now. Let me just ask you this then. I mean, the point that I made just a minute ago, whenever, you know, about Revelation 19 and 14, 
do you see what I'm trying to say? Whenever I read 19, the first thing that doesn't come into my mind like it used to with 14 was, okay, they're burning forever and ever, right? The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. The, the only thing, you know, to, to Ross's point, really, the only, let me, uh, yeah, the only thing that I see in this text that kind of John elaborates on a little bit was is where he says, there will be no rest day or night for those who have worshipped the beast and its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name, or, yeah, of its name. Uh, so, Chris, just, I guess real quick, is there, could there be, because Revelation 19 doesn't make the claim, obviously, am I, and just to be fairly honest, am I trying to hold to ECT reading that if I'm, if I'm looking at it like that, or is that, is that a fair question? Can you repeat what the question is? Yeah, 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 sir. So the question is, John says, there will be no rest. A day or night for those oh, who worship okay. the beast. Right. Right. So, so yeah, that's unfortunately not the best translation. Okay. Um, that's what the text literally says is um, there, they do not cease um, these worshipers of the beast in its image. Um, the, the translation, they have no rest, is um, a strange one, given that earlier in Revelation, the exact same Greek phrase is translated, they do not cease. Mm-hmm. Um, but regardless, it does say they don't cease something. Sure. But the point I'm getting at is that this doesn't say there will be no rest. It's saying they, that is the beast worshipers, do not cease these worshipers of the beast in its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. So the text is, in fact, here about the beast worshipers in the vision. And what that symbolizes, therefore, in reality, the people that those beast worshipers represent, uh, is something that we have to cash out. We don't just get to transfer elements of the imagery wholesale from its visionary element to the thing that the visionary element represents. If I can, just to add that to that real quick, who, what does the beast worshipers represent? Or, or who? <laughs> Well, that's going to depend on whether you're talking to a partial preterist amillennialist like me or whether you're talking to a futurist premillennialist. And I don't know if there are any such people on this call. Um, So I don't want to get too much into that. Suffice it to say, I think we could all agree, at least, regardless of which millennial view we have, that the beast worshipers here represent people either in our past or in our future who are committed not to God, but to whatever the beast represents. And all of us, I think, would most of us at least would say that beast represents some kind of um, institution that is um, aligned against God rather than with God. So I think the most we could say, the least common denominator would be that these beast worshipers represent people whose commitment is to an ungodly institution rather than to God. Right. Ross, would you agree with that or or not? Yeah, I would actually also be a uh... You know, Chris, this is another thing we have in common. I'm also a partial preterist in my read of Revelation, but again, that is a third podcast. Yes. So, uh, <laughs> Sounds like we got a lot of episodes in the future. Indeed. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, um, yeah, I would understand them talking about the same entity, whatever you want to call it, from three different vantage points. Uh, they're talking about the, the woman, the woman who was in the city, and then the inhabitants. And when they're talking about the inhabitants, they describe them, I think, by with the language of torment. And when they're talking about the same group from the perspective of a woman, they're just saying her destruction, you know, for whatever reason they're symbolizing. Mm, but she is tormented. Uh, which Explicitly. part is she? With the, well, the fire, yeah, is I that mean, what you're saying? 
Yeah, well, well, take, for example, Revelation 18.7. Give her, that is the woman, a like measure of torment. And that's not the only place. We could also go to verse 10. They, that is the kings of the earth who had committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her, they will stand far off in fear of her torment. And then we see it again in verse 15. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment. And then, of course, she is said to burn, to burn in fire as well. So the idea that somehow the torment is of the things that the symbols represent, but the woman is just destroyed is simply not the case. Oh, I, I appreciate that. that I, I'm, uh, I am fine with that reading. <laughs> That's okay. So if you want to talk about the destruction of a city, why can't it be true to say that the city is destroyed and the people are tormented? Nobody is saying that that's impossible, but that's not something you get from the text. And see, that's the whole point of this, is that we're trying to make a case for a view from the text, but what you're actually making a case from is your assumption that the torment described, the, the torment attributed to symbols in the vision must equally be true of the things those symbols represent, or at least people within uh, people within the body of people represented by the symbols they represent or whatever. And I'm not saying that's impossible, but I all, but I am saying that's not something you get from the text. It's what you get from your assumption that you bring to the text, which is you can transfer what happens to the visionary element to what the visionary element represents in reality. I'm not sure how that position is. I'm not sure that it's sufficient evidence against that position to just say that the city is destroyed. It seems that the uh, position that the individual said to be tormented will be tormented. It seems like that stands contrary to evidence of the opposite. Well, but it doesn't. So the woman herself in Revelation 18 is said to be tormented in fire and smoke rises from her forever. And then what we're told is that this scene symbolizes the destruction of a city such that that city is found no more and nobody inhabits anymore, inhabits it anymore. That is the most that we can confidently say the symbolism symbolizes. And the reason that's the most we can say confidently that it symbolizes is because that's what we're told. Now, is it possible that the city's destruction symbolized by the scene is followed by some sort of everlasting torment of what, everybody that lived in that city? Or, uh, uh, you know, We'd have to do some guesswork there, but of course, this is all guesswork on the traditional side. We could do that. But that isn't that you certainly can't call that the clearest evidence, as you did earlier, for eternal torment, when all that the eternal torment is is the only people suffering eternal torment are symbols. The, 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 they, taking that to the next step to say that the things those symbols symbolize experience torment forever too is an unjustified leap. Yeah, I mean, I would say that the individuals in chapter 14 do seem to be individuals. So I, I don't feel... Oh, I agree. They're the people who worship a seven-headed, ten-horned beast, which doesn't exist in reality, will never exist in reality. Neither will there be anybody who worships a seven-headed, ten-horned beast in reality. I assume the people that John is after in, in this situation, uh, the, the ones who this prophecy will go out towards, are people. In the vision, the people who are worshiping the beast are indeed people. But what do those people in the vision symbolize? Because these people are the only worshiping a seven-handed, ten-horned beast. They're also worshiping a statue that's erected that represents that uh, beast, uh, which 
we have no reason to assume there has been or will be such a statue in reality. They also receive a mark on their forehead or hand. And unless you're a dispensational premillennialist, you probably don't think that anybody's going to actually receive an actual mark on their actual forehead or their actual hand. Bill Gates, so he's after us. What's that? Bill Gates is after us. Yes. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, so the point I'm getting at is that everything that is said here in this verse, in these verses, 9 to 11, is about the beast worshipers in the vision. So to say that the beast worshippers being tormented forever in fire must mean that the people those people symbolize will also suffer forever is simply not something you can get from the text. It must be read in. Now, really quick, I just want to say, uh, Tyler, uh, and I will let Ross come back in and and, and push back again. Um, It's critical that before we end, we get to Revelation 20. So at some point, we should probably shift gears to that because that's going to take up probably a bulk, a lot of our time. Yeah, absolutely. And we've but I'll let you do that when when Ross feels comfortable moving on. Yeah, and I would, that's go ahead, Ross. I was going to say uh, we're actually I think we might even be on the same page on who the people are that uh, John is addressing here. I think we would both say that this is I could be wrong about this, but as uh, good old partial preterists, we would say that the people John is addressing are the uh, you know the the Jews who have rejected Jesus, right, and who are their impending divorcement papers are coming. So it seems like John's warning, well, God's warning through John is to those individuals. So it seems like what he's saying is, if you continue along this line, if you continue in your adultery to me, your husband, then this is going to be your fate. Well, no, clearly not. What he's saying is that this fate of the beast worshipers in the vision symbolizes the fate of those people you just mentioned. And I do agree with you there. I think the people that are being warned here are first century Jewish apostates who are in bed, proverbially speaking, with Rome, um, not um, people in our future or whatever. I agree with you there. But those Jews aren't the people who worship a seven-headed, stone-horned beast, its statue, and receive a mark on their forehand or hand. Rather, it's the people in the vision that have those things happen to them. And that those people, the fate that happens to them, torment and fire for, and from which smoke rises forever, that fate symbolizes the actual fate of those Jews that we just talked about. You oh, don't get to just automatically transfer an element of that from one to the other. This is so interesting. Um, but you would, you would see the uh, – I've never been able to talk to another preterist about this kind of thing that I also disagree with, so this is exciting. Um, <laughs> so you would see the seven-headed – um, ten-horned beast as Rome, wouldn't you? It's a symbol symbolizing Rome. Yes, right. With the seven, uh, the seven Caesars and the ten hills on Rome. I mean, that's uh, that's no, that's... it's it's seven hills, not ten. But yes, oh, I I'm agree. Sorry. Yeah, the, the beast, I had the beast up. with its seven heads and ten horns represents the, the represents the Roman Empire. And John's charge here is that Israel is more or less worshiping Rome, right? The the uh, Adulterous. Yes, but they, but, but no individual within Israel is worshiping a seven-headed, ten-horned beast. Only the people in the vision are doing that. Right, but the the connotation is that they're worshiping Rome, i.e., the symbolic. Uh, exactly. You know. So we can say that there is a fate that those worshippers of Rome, or those we could say those people who are committed, uh, uh, I you know they they are idolatrously committed to Rome. Let's say those people are going to face a fate that is symbolized by the fate faced by these beast worshippers. I agree with you there, 
but you're still trying to pull across that bridge, the bridge of symbolism. You're trying to pull across that bridge, the torment and fire from which smoke rises forever of the beast worshipers and say, that's true of the people those beast worshipers represent. And that's what I'm saying is something you don't get. You don't just get that for free. Um, but listen, I really do think we're down to 18 minutes. Yeah. Uh, we should probably get to Revelation 20 at some it, point. Right. Yeah, I agree. Um, And in just to just so I if to clarify or just see if I understand real quick, Chris, what you're saying is that basically all of these people and the things that happen to them are symbols, right? They, they symbolize what will happen, not the event that is happening or that will happen to us, right? But what Ross seems to be doing is taking only half of that and saying, this is symbol, but this, this other half exactly. of the symbol is, is actually what's really going to happen. That's right. So, so by way okay. of imperfect analogy, consider the parable of the fish. Okay. Jesus tells a parable in which he says, you know, something along the lines of fishermen bring in a net of fish and they throw back the bad ones. Now consider this. What happens to the fish in the parable who are thrown back? They go on swimming and enjoying a merry life of a fish. Mm, right. But what happens to the good fish? They're eaten. Now, if you wanted to sort of lift every element of the of the parabolic story, lift and shift it from that to the fate of the Christians that those good fish represent, then you would say hmm. those Christians are killed and eaten. We'll be but of course, right. we know that's not the case. Now, of course, this isn't a parable, but I would argue that it's even more important that we recognize that distinction here because we're not just dealing with a parable here. We're dealing with visionary apocalyptic symbolism. Right. Ross, if, um, if you would like to respond to that, or you can just jump right into Revelation 20 if you want to, man. Yeah, I think uh, Yeah, I think we've covered a lot of ground there on Revelation yeah. 14. I had a good time talking about that. That was kind of fun. Same here. Uh, yeah, I, I that... think, no, that really, I for me anyway, that definitely brought out a lot for, for, for both of you guys. So thank you very much for taking the time to do that. I appreciate it. Yeah, so in, um, in Revelation 20, um, yeah. Yeah, I think the the case I made is pretty straightforward. Uh, it's at least it's not surprising. I, th I think for most people listening, where I'm where I'm getting what I'm talking about. So sure. I honestly might just open it up to Chris there. Uh, where where did I go wrong here, Chris? <laughs> uh, well, the way you went wrong is exactly the same way that you went wrong with Revelation fourteen nine to eleven. In in my um, opinion, which I wish were more humble than it actually is. Um, the, namely, you're taking what happens to visionary symbols and saying that's what's going to happen to the things those symbols represent. So yes, the beast, the seven-headed, ten-horned beast, the two-horned beast from a, that we read about after uh, the first beast in Revelation 13, who here is called the false prophet, they and the red dragon, who represents the devil here, are all thrown into a lake of fire and tormented day and night forever and ever. Um, and then we see death and Hades emptied, and those people who come up out of death and Hades go into that lake of fire as well, presumably to be tormented forever and ever. After all, you, the only way to make a case for eternal torment of human beings from this text is to assume that what happens to those humans thrown into it share the same fate, because the, it's not said that the human beings thrown into it will suffer torment forever and ever. It's an assumption, and it's one I share, by the way, that in the vision those people who come up out of Hades experience eternal torment when they're thrown into the lake of fire. I agree. But there's something else thrown into the lake of fire too. And it's death and Hades. We see in verse 13, the, the sea gave up the dead who were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, et cetera, et cetera. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Now here's what's really critical. 
um, uh, Ross said whatever those are earlier, as if it's not clear what these are. I'll contend that it is, in fact, extremely clear what they are, both in terms of what they are in the vision and in terms of what they represent in reality. So, for example, if we go back to Revelation 6, this is the famous, the infamous four horsemen of the apocalypse. And what is the fourth horse rider? Well, in Revelation 6, 8, John says, I looked and behold, a pale horse and its rider's name was Death. Death. And Hades followed him. So what do we know about what Death and Hades are in Revelation 20 in terms of what is being depicted? Well, a horseman and his squire or something like that, you know, the, the horseman named Death and his squire or the one following him called Hades, they... These personal entities are what are thrown into the lake of fire in the vision. That's absolutely clear. Then the question becomes, well, what do they represent in reality? And here, I think it's equally clear by virtue simply of their identification as death and Hades. The horseman called death symbolizes death, lifelessness, not living anymore. Um, And Hades symbolizes the the, the squire that is a personal entity in the vision uh, called Hades symbolizes the grave, the pit, the underworld, the intermediate state, you know, whatever. Um, And as further evidence that we that that's what they symbolize, we could just read a few verses later uh, to Revelation 21, verse four. And here we're starting to uh, see God tell us um, what's going to happen. Um, He quotes, uh, or at the very least alludes to Isaiah 25 and says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And he says, and death shall be no more. You see, the the, the picture of this horseman named Death and his squire Hades being thrown into the lake of fire and tormented forever and ever, that picture symbolizes the annihilation of death. Indeed, uh, in Isaiah 25, it says Yahweh will swallow up death forever. But in the very next chapter in Isaiah 26, we see how that cashes out, what that means. We see Isaiah told that his people, Yahweh's people, will rise and live. But just a little bit later, Isaiah is told that the Israel's oppressors will not rise and live. So for death to be swallowed up forever, for God to wipe away every tear from the eyes of his people such that death will be no more, means that after God's enemies have been destroyed, and after God's people's enemies have all been destroyed, and his people are made uh, immortal, death will indeed be no more because no one will ever die again. And this is exactly what we read Paul saying in 1 Corinthians 15, because in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says in verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And that word translated destroyed is the Greek verb katargeo, which means literally to cause to cease to happen. So what Paul is saying is that the very last enemy is death. That is the last enemy that will uh, receive its destructive fate. And what it will what will happen to it is that it will no longer happen. But according to the tradi- traditional view, myriad other enemies are they, they are they are never caused to cease to be rebellious and sinful in their hearts. They instead go on for eternity long after the enemy that is going to be destroyed, death is destroyed. But 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 anyway, going back to Revelation 20, the point I'm getting at is we hear we see in Revelation 21, 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 and Isaiah 25, 26, that the fate of death and the grave is to be annihilated. So when we read in Revelation 20 that other things are thrown into that lake of fire and tormented forever and ever, we can reasonably suspect at the very least 
that what the fate of everlasting torment in the lake of fire symbolizes is a fate that is consistent with annihilation. And I'll add just one more thing and then turn things back to Ross. Um, critical here is that John and God himself both interpret the symbolism for us. In verse 14 of Revelation 20, John says, this is the second death, the lake of fire. And then in Revelation 21.8, the passage that um, Ross pointed to earlier, God himself uh, interprets the lake of fire. He says, there, the lake that burns with fire and sulfur is the second death. Now, this is important. What John and God are doing is not identifying fiery, the lake of fire and it's the torment that takes place there as the second death. That's not what they're doing. They're interpreting that fate as symbolizing the second death. And, um, and, and again, this goes back to what we talked about earlier. The three baskets are three days. The seven cows are seven years and so on and so forth. This is how visionary interpretation works all throughout scripture. So what that means is that second death has got to tell readers what the symbolism symbolizes. And here's what I would contend, and then I'll turn things over to Ross. There's only two possible ways in which second death could interpret the symbolism for readers. One is by delivering the meaning that is hidden in the perplexing imagery using plain ordinary language that all of us understand. And if that's what the second death is meant to do, then we all know what that means. It means dying a second time. And we have to jump through all sorts of gymnastics to make it mean something else. The other possibility is that, oh, and just to be clear, I'm the one who believes the wicked will die a second time. Um, the, the second thing is that the phrase second death is used all through or a number of times in what's called the Targums. The Targums were similar to the Septuagint. Um, if, if your listeners aren't familiar, the Septuagint was a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek that was completed in the centuries leading up to Christ. But that wasn't the only translation of the Hebrew Old Testament available to New Testament uh, Jewish people and Christians. We also had the Aramaic translations of the Hebrew Old Testament called the Targums. And in all Jewish literature, the phrase second death only appears in the Targums. And it appears there multiple times. And in some of those places, it even uh, occurs with Gehenna, which is what Math, uh, Jesus talks about in the Synoptic Gospels when he's talking about hell. He talks about Gehenna. And here's the fundamental thing. Everywhere the phrase second death is used in the Targums, including those places where it's referring to Gehenna, second death means literally dying a second time and not living in the age to come. It's not about ruination. It's not about torment. It's about literally dying a second time. So when John and God himself both interpret the fiery lake of uh, the, the, this, this fiery lake in which these bizarre beasts and resurrected humans are tormented forever and ever, he's saying this symbolizes either dying a second time or the fate that his readers were familiar with from the Targums, which is also dying a second time. <laughs> There's no way around it. So rather than assume I can know what the imagery might or might not be capable of meaning, I want to let John and God tell us what it means. And they tell us it means dying a second time. I just real quick and, and Ross, I, I want to hit on a point that, um, that Chris made about death is, is the last enemy to be destroyed. Now, again, man, I, I'm trying to just basically say what you believe in my own words. But you would say that death, actually, eternal death, eternal punishment, that, that's, the, that's synonymous in your vocabulary, right? Eternal death is eternal punishment. Uh, yes, I think okay. we would uh, agree. Okay, so my question then is just simply this. If death 
does cease, right? Matt, or Revelation 21. If death ceases, how does death exist eternally? Well, I think we would all agree that death exists eternally in some sense. Nope. You know, we, we, I mean, we, we don't agree. agree. Uh, death, ultimate so, death means, are the people who no longer exist dead? No, they so are real, dead. real quick. They, just, they are, go ahead. Just to clarify, just real quick, um, Revelation 21, verse 4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Again, my question was, if death continues forever, or I'm sorry, let me just read it real quick. If death ceases, like John 21, 4, or Revelation 24 seems to say, then how can we have a continuous death experience? That That's the point that I was trying to make it, because it does, it does seem death ceases, right? Well, Ross, if, Ross. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I would agree that, uh, people are dead forever. They don't continue to die, which I think was what Chris was bringing up. I would agree with that. Uh, you know, people won't die again, you know, believers, and especially who's in view here, uh, believers won't die anymore, but I think we would all agree that the lost will be dead forever. You can't speak of somebody who has been destroyed in both body and soul as being anything. Right. That... When, when, we say, when we say that somebody who has died is dead, and if what we mean by that is that both their body and their soul has been destroyed, then saying they are dead is merely convention. It's not actually, it doesn't have meaning in it. And, and when Paul says the last enemy to be destroyed is death, when he says it will, that word does not mean it will, it will no longer be the case that anyone is dead. It means that death will no longer happen. So what it means for death to be no more is that nobody will ever experience death again. Yeah, I'm not sure why that's a problem for the traditionalist position. Because you have the resurrected wicked or disembodied wicked, unlike the vast majority of your traditionalist peers and through history, you have them... Um, experiencing death forever after all you did say that death right. is corruption and they are experiencing corruption are they not yeah of course they're experiencing corruption but i think you would also agree that they're experiencing corruption no they're not they aren't there anymore i, I do yeah chris would you say they're not experiencing anything yeah the, right. um not even their bodies because the the they're going to be burned up the, all that will remain is ash and you can't say that a pile of ash is equipped could be suffering something as if people are suffering something it's a pile of ash yeah i'm not even saying for the suffering from your view but the pile of ash would be the dead people forever no right? no you don't you don't you don't look at a pile of ash in an urn and say oh that's my mom that's the bot that's my mom i mean we do but it's convention it's it's uh, uh here put it this way um a pile of ash that results after a house is burned down is a house no more Right, but it's what used to be a house. Yeah, but it's not a house. Yeah, I don't have any. I don't have an issue with that. Just like the eternally lost in hell, suffering forever, are something that used to be human beings. Oh, so oh, three boy. minutes before the end of our conversation, we introduced this. So you're telling me that human beings created in the image of God, when they are thrown into hell, cease to be human beings bearing the image of God, in the same way that. Right now, we have uh, an image of God that is, uh, I guess you could say, spoiled. Uh, we're not what we were supposed to be. We're not what we were all intended to be because we experienced death. But we right. still bear the image of God, correct? Oh, of course, yes. But in hell, you're saying the wicked no longer bear the image of God and for that reason are no longer human? 
I'm not saying that they're no longer human. I'm just you saying, just did. I'm saying in a manner of speaking, uh, um, the destroyed person is like I was saying before a tertium quid. I'm not saying disembodied spirit. I'm not saying someone who is definitely uh, embodied in the sense that we are thinking. I'm just saying tertium quid. Um, if I if I could just because uh, you did go on for a while, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, really I'll stop interrupting. Right. Can you, uh, what are the portions in the Targum that you are referencing where the second death clearly means... uh, Dying a second time? Right. Um, We've only got two minutes and it's going to take me that long to pull them up. Do you want me to do that or should we save that for another time? Um, If we could, yeah, I mean, if we could, if we could save that for another time or you guys can continue this conversation, I would love to be part of it, you know, off off air. Um, But just since we do got two minutes wrapped up or, or left, let me just ask this real quick. Giving both perspectives now, let me just ask Ross and, Bo- and, and Chris, do you both see at least how one can read eternal conscious torment? Or, or Ross, can you see how Chris, can you see how he is coming to the conclusion that we do, uh, that we do see, or not we, but the wicked, the resurrected wicked will cease? Yeah, I can certainly see. Uh, I can certainly see the case. I mean, like, uh, it's much easier for me to read conditional immortality out of scripture than it is like universalism, for instance. But I, uh, I, I mean, I continue to look at the Book of Revelation and struggle with the reading sure. that Chris is presenting, which I think uh, Edward Fudge in his book, um, in his chapter on Revelation, kind of kind of throws up his hands at the end of the chapter and and says, you know, I, I get that these are really strong arguments in favor of Revelation, but at the end of the day. The rest of the scripture is so clear to me that it outweighs what seems like a strong testament to the traditionalist position. It's on page 252 of his book, but uh, yes. Right. And it's not, a, it's not an accurate characterization of what Fudge says. I have to say that another time. We will save that for another time. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Ross, for coming on. You have been listening to The Complete Sinner's Guide, www.completesinnersguide.com. Check us out. Email me, completesinner.gmail.com. We will see you next time. God bless and see ya.